Please note this episode contains descriptions of sexual grooming, molestation, and child trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> you are phenomenal. I'm going to, I was like, why would I start any other way? Seriously. I am thrilled to introduce you all today to Vita Galore. What a, it just, it, you are joy personified, which is not what one would normally think of for somebody who had been sex trafficked. And it is because of, particularly because of that, that I think it's imperative to share your story because it's not always possible to heal. It was just one of those by the grace of God things that, that it happened for me, but I see so many for whom that's not their reality. And it's important to honor all of the facets of people's lives that are impacted by trauma. But I, I wanted to share yours, but I don't want to foreshadow that too much. I say, well, foreshadowing that. <laughs> but I, I know that your experience started when you were very young at five. So will you share that with us, please? Yes, Cheryl. Thank you so much for giving me this outlet to share this story because I've been carrying it for 48 years. Mm. Um, but it did begin when I was five and I didn't realize the story and the magnitude of what it was until really probably the last two or three years ago. So if you can imagine, it's taken me decades to even crack that story yes. open. And um, it began in a very sublim, very, I would say, soft way. And it's called sexual grooming is what this is the term I've come to learn. And it started with my mom sexually grooming me with my stepfather. And there was this innocent, what I thought was innocent um, adventure we were taking to a drive-through movie. And I wanted to see a cartoon. I I quickly realized, you know, they actually had snuck me in the trunk of the car to get me into this drive-in theater, which seemed odd to me, but, you know, it, as a kid, you don't know why. An adventure. Yeah. Yeah, it's an adventure, you know, we're going to put you in the trunk and then we'll take you out. Well, come to find out, it was, it was a rated R, like X-rated sex movie. And when that came on the screen, of course, you know, I was just very upset about it. And I wanted to see a cartoon. And my mom explained to me that, you know, there would be no cartoons here, that this is what we would watch as a family. And so it was just a very like mild way of, of sexually grooming me to where in my little mind, as I got older, when the sexual trafficking began, this seemed like second nature because this is how I was taught. Right. Did you look around and see that there were no children there and you were the only one? And at that time, in, in this mind of mine, it was just dark and mm -hmm. I knew it didn't seem right. It seemed scary, it seemed confusing, but when my mom told me that this is what was happening and right. this is what we were to do, it was an acceptance. You trust your caregiver, that's inherent in the species. Uh, wow. Okay. Did you at some point then realize something was wrong or it was so normalized that it just became how life was? I knew that something was shameful about it. There was um, this insight because I was making friends at school and they were talking about all these fun children's movies they were watching. It, back in that time, it was Mary Poppins. It was all these Disney movies. And it was like I was not even exposed to any of that. And I thought, something's different with me. Like, something's wrong. You know, I'm watching these scary movies with naked adults, and they're making weird noises, and they're doing weird things. And it was scary. And it, it just, at that age, became so dark for me. Right. I bet it was, I bet it was so confusing. 
very confusing. We don't quite grasp logic. I, you know, it, it's, it's a, a malleable thing then, you know, where there is make-believe. It's such a prevalent part of being a kid and not knowing what's real and what's, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so at what point did it escalate? It escalated at about, and my timelines are fuzzy because there's a lot of fractured memories, but I think it was about seven or eight years old when, you know, it left the drive-in theaters to um, renting videos and my mom would uh, put me in this room with my stepfather and we initially started watching these X-rated pornographic movies. And then, you know, she exited the room and left me with my stepfather and, it was this time where, you know, I had seen this for at least a couple of years and it was almost an autopilot reaction when he started fondling me that, oh, well, this is just how this goes. This is how we spend family time. Got it. Where, where was your father? You mentioned your stepfather. Yes. So my mom and my um, father divorced before I was born. Um, they, I didn't know my father until I was about 20 years old. And that partially had to do with my stepfather. I think, you know, he wanted to control this, this sexual relationship with me and he did not allow me to even know my father. So that was a miss for me too. So uh there you are and 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 your mom leaves you and did she ever then discuss it with you does she ever process it with you anything is there ever any mention of it there was questions at that point when I'm about seven or eight and I said, mom, you know, I want to see like the kids movies that my friends see at school and they talk about and she'd say, oh, well, you know, we don't watch that here. Like if you see it on TV, great, but you know, this is, this is just what we do. Like this is, this is how we spend our time together as a family. Um, so it was just this place where I would get cut off um, immediately from being able to really question things. Um, and it just evolved into more of a snowball of um, trafficking because she, you know, sent me into other situations with my stepfather and literally just left me and, and I watch her walk by and the abuse was happening and she'd just turn her, turn her face to it and she wouldn't help me. What kind, what were the other kinds of situations that she left you in? So those were situations where, you know, at this point, you know, I'm going to bed at night and my stepfather's tucking me in, but he's doing more than that. He's lingering in the bed and he's continuing to fondle and molest me and I want to be left alone. You know, I'm a young child and I want to rest. I mean, I had to get up and go to school in the morning and he'd keep me up late at night. And, you know, I remember one time I just had my door open in my bedroom and I was at this place of despair. Like literally, you know, that feeling yourself when you check out of your, like your, your, your body, you just right. check out because this is all happening and you can't stop it. And at that moment, I remember my mom just walking by the bedroom and looking at me and then turning away. And there was nothing I knew she would not help me. And I just had to sit there and, and let that abuse happen. Are you an only child? I'm the only child from my mom and my father. Got it. Yes. Was there anyone else in the home with you or were you a left, left alone with the two of them? Um, I have two younger half-brothers that are my stepfather and my mother's children. Um, they were young and they were not around. I don't know. They were probably in their rooms, but they weren't really a part of this. Got it. And how long did this continue? So this continued until about the age of 13, um, right about the time when I started finally getting exposed to family members because, you know, now looking back, I can see the control and how, you know, a trafficking situation like this, you know, is kept under wraps. We didn't have exposure to many friends. We weren't exposed to our family. It was like this hermit existence. And finally, you know, my mother's family wanted to see her. They wanted to see us. And at about the age of 13, we finally got to see family members. And it was immediate that they clued into what was happening. 
did they did they say anything or they did they didn't say things to me directly but they were talking to my mom about it and um, she got very defensive um, there literally was a point where my mom would have let this continue happening but her sister and my grandmother which is her mother um, gave her an ultimatum they said if you continue to let this happen it's going to be child protective services at your door or you can let her stay with us. We're, we're not letting her go back into that house. So that was really my saving grace was my aunt and my grandmother. They, they um, saw clearly what was happening for years. Well, by the time I was 13. And did, did you stay then with your aunt and your grandmother or did you go back? I did. I did. I ended up um, staying with them and my aunt and my uncle raised me. They had four children of their own. Um, so it was a very challenging dynamic. I'm 13. I'm going into junior high school. Um, I moved from Michigan to Florida. I'm in this family dynamic with four children, my, my cousins, you know, very sweet children, but we didn't really have a connection. We didn't have a bond. I was removed from my brothers. And it was in this place, like this new, this new upbringing, but it was definitely a happier place. I didn't have the anxiety and the stress of, you know, having someone lurk into my room and molest me and, and abuse me all night. Got it. Now, when I had originally read your story, you'd mentioned that your mom had left you alone with your stepfather because that would keep him content and not leave so that it would help pay the rent and keep food on the table. Did she ever say that to you or did he ever threaten to leave and leave you alone? Or was it, how, tell me how you knew about this. So as I got older, this increasingly created some lots of anger, although I wasn't allowed to express my anger, but there was this moment with my mother where I just said, this isn't right. I don't know why you're allowing this to happen. And in so many words, it's not the direct way she said it, but she says, you know, I come from a third world country. I have no skills. You have two brothers. You know, this is how we are going to survive. This is what has to happen. Like you need to be a good girl. You need to look pretty and you need to show up. And, and that was it. Like I knew what she meant. Yeah. And your mother is from Peru. Is that correct? Yes. Do you suspect that this is something that she went through as a girl? I suspect it, Cheryl. I don't know it. And it's, funny timing, I should say crazy timing as we're having this interview, because um, about two weeks ago, I was invited by a family member to talk to my mother's sister to understand the story. We, we, I have had this hypothesis, if you will, that my mother obviously has some mental issues um, to let this happen to her, her child. But I don't know her story, and I'm going to learn her story probably this weekend. So I feel I feel like everything's coming full circle. Wow! Is your mom still alive? She's still alive. She's still in Michigan, and I haven't spoken to her in years. When's the last time? Have you seen her since your aunt and your grandmother took you away? I have seen her. I saw her in my early to mid 30s. That's the last time I physically saw her. What? What did you say? What I, I, over the years? What on earth do you say to somebody who allows that? Well, you say that this isn't right, and you're deeply heartbroken, and your life is never going to be the same. You can create it differently, um, but for someone in that mind state to be able to, you know, be at that place there's really not much to expect. Right. Now, it wasn't just your stepfather. Your mother wanted to rent you out, sell you, exchange you for something to other family members as well, correct? Yes. So my uncle, which was actually my stepfather's brother, I would say he's my step-uncle. There was this uh, interesting memory I have when 
my stepfather was giving me so much attention because, you know, at this point I'm an adolescent and I felt my mother becoming a bit envious and jealous about mm. that. And it felt awkward. I mean, I didn't want to be in the situation in the first place, um, but it really was, as I say in my blog story, I was a pawn for her to have this life that she had. And, you know, it's this place where she decided that perhaps if she, allowed my uncle to have these situations, these experiences with me, she could have her husband back for a while and, you know, be able to capture this man that he, he was, uh, he was very obsessed with me. It was sickening. It was, it was, I had, I bore that brunt of carrying all of his desires. And I think my mom maybe kind of felt a bit bad for that and decided to, pass me on to someone else. And she tried and she asked me and she asked my uncle. And fortunately, he did not comply or entertain her offers. And that's like a big sigh of relief for me as a child. But it's just devastatingly heartbreaking that she wished that for me or would explore that. Did he report it anywhere? No. No one reported things like this. I mean, mind you, this was in the early 80s. Yeah. And these were really dark skeletons that it was never spoken of. Uh, just a different era, right? A different era. Mm. No, one's, no one spoke. Everything was hidden. And if you spoke, you were to be shamed. You were you know, demoralized, demonized, um, you were the wrong one. And you're already living in so much like filth and dirt and shame and pain. You don't want that. So you don't continue to try to make a difference. Did you ever confide in anybody, any friends, anybody? I confided in my best friend who still is my best friend to this day. I, and it was when I did not return to Michigan with my mom and my, my family, my stepbrothers, my stepfather, and my best friend. We used to write letters to each other back in those times. And she was devastated I didn't come back because I was left in Florida with my aunt and my uncle. And we talked on the phone and I just said, Chrissy, I really want to be back there with you. We had just made the cheerleading team. I tried to have a normal life as much mm -hmm. as possible. And so that was like the big boon for me to have that escape. But it was taken away quite quickly. And I wanted to go back to it. But I told her things aren't right with my, my house and my, my father, um, my mom. And she knew. She just knew. Speaking of just knowing, you'd mentioned that when you'd gone to see your, your family, your mom's family, that your aunt and your grandmother knew. Was your stepfather doing something? Yes. How, like how, did they, how could they tell? I'm, I'm fascinated. Well, that I have gleaned from my aunts and my grandmother. Fortunately, you know, they were able to give me insights I couldn't wrap around a, a small mind at that time. And they said, oh, it was so obvious to us, you know, when we would be outside, he would want you to sit on his lap. You were like forced to sit on his lap all the time and he wouldn't let you, you know, out of his sight. And it was just very odd behavior that, yeah. you know, he was so possessive of everywhere you went. And I think it was my cousin at the time, she told my uh, aunt that he was coming into our room at night. And oh, thank God, she witnessed the things that were happening. And I, I just learned to keep my mouth silent. I pretty much if you had a zipper on my on your lips, I just had zipped that mouth and I never spoke. It just totally silenced me. But family members were aware of that. Right. Well, became aware of it. Thank God. Yes. Did you ever, with your friend, your best friend, Chrissy, were you ever explicit about it when you were a girl? It was so hard because breaking that silence uh, was a really shameful yes. time, time to even talk about it. But I felt so 
I felt comfortable with her and I wanted her to know. And I told her, I said, you know, things have happened in the household with my stepfather. And she said, oh, I just felt things were weird. And he wasn't very accepting of us coming over there. And she said, my mom suspected it. Everyone, I feel like wow. that, that was exposed to our family and it was rare that we had exposure. They saw it. Here's the reason I ask, Vida. I'm not, there's, I don't mean anything incriminating, but I have this, this theory. There are statistics that we all see about the amount of sexual assault, sexual abuse, sex trafficking, all of these things. And they're very high, but I think they're skewed because people tell me routinely that they never have told anyone. Personally, I didn't tell anyone for well over a decade, more than 15 years, not a soul, not a therapist that I was seeing, nobody. But every time I speak, every time I'm on the media, people come up and say, I've never told this to a soul. Hundreds of people have said things like that to me. I know that people are keeping silent for those reasons you said, I'm in this filth. We feel that filth is us. And I just, I think the numbers as high as they are, are, are grossly underestimated. Absolutely. And, mm, I just, I, it's, it's so hard to accept ourselves and I, we feel culpable. Oh, there was something I did. Was that an experience you had that there was something you had done to bring it on once you got old enough to recognize what was happening? Very much. Um, it was repeated to me by my mother when we did get into these moments of contention and conversation about it, that it really was my fault. And her reasoning was, when you were a child, you wore your little sundresses, you would spin around in circles, you'd lift your dress and twirl, you were showing your panties, you did cartwheels when you were in gymnastics, like you were showing your body around the house, you're shameful, you're wrong, you, you seduced this man. Mm. Wow, yeah. So it's, as, as we started the conversation, I talked about how remarkable your healing is. And I know you've really poured yourself into doing the work, mm. all the heavy lifting of, of the decades of self-inquiry and self-discovery and all of it. Can I ask... It's so often that I'll speak with people who have been trafficked in any way, familial or to strangers, but who are unable to have a normal sexual relationship at this point. I would imagine the healing that you've gone through does allow you to have that. May I ask about that? I don't well, need specifics. It's just, do you find that you've been able to heal in that area as well? I feel it like this year, quite honestly, Cheryl, this year has been so monumental for that part of my healing because this year I've only begun to really shake out the shame by replacing new messaging that is not shame-based. And when you are in that place of feeling, you know, dirt, um, grime, black, right. you know, just so guilty, you know, of, of all this stuff that has been imposed on you, you don't want intimacy. You do push people away, especially men. And trust with men has been like a decades-long recovery. Right. And I am really grateful and I can honestly tell you that I'm finally experiencing intimacy with my, my husband in a whole new way. 
And it really is because I've replaced the belief systems that I've been holding on to for so long. I've created new systems, new beliefs that are nurturing and expressive and non-silencing so that I can have that connection. But that was snuffed for most of my life. So I, I've, I feel compelled to share with you and your listeners that there is a turning point. There is a rainbow. There is reprieve. There is light. There is life. And it's a choice. And it's work. And it's, and it's sometimes it's dark and it's scary. But on the other side of that, there is so much reclamation and blessing. And, you know, if I can share part of how this has shifted is really letting go of the resentment because, you know, resentment is an offshoot of being a victim. And I have held on to resentment, trust me, for all of these decades. And just recently, I was able to see how it has disempowered my intimacy, my connection, my trust with people, women, men, and replacing resentment with two things, acceptance and surrender has really allowed my life to move towards like a new direction. And it's allowing me to reenter the game of life in a really miraculous way. And I, I, want, I want listeners to know that we can really let go of resentment and have a whole new chapter of life. There's something really miraculous in that. And it's because, because it's not the norm. You know, there's, there's this commonly held belief about if I let go of resentment, that means I condone what occurred. If I let go of resentment, if I don't forgive, or rather, like, that was paradoxical. If I let go of resentment and I do forgive, that means I'm saying whatever you did is okay and you can continue to do it. Mm. But that's not it at all. I mistakenly felt that for, for some time. And you nailed the word so beautifully. It's paradoxical. And this is part of the key I want women and men to see is life is a paradox. And I actually have some examples that I can maybe help listeners, viewers understand that concept more wholly and complete if you want me to share that. Please, I love it. <laughs> and it's kind of intimate and it's very personalized, but my point of sharing it is, is that we can do this ourselves in our own way, um, but this is something I actually just worked on this week and it's given me that huge boon, that lift to write the new chapter. And so this is, I forgive myself for holding on to resentment to push people away so I will not be vulnerable to being hurt by them. I forgive myself for not accepting my life because I think it's unfair. I have been holding on to these resentments, lady, for decades. Right. And, and justly then, so. I can imagine there's people out there listening who go, damn straight. <laughs> Your yes. mother traded you for rent. She you should did. be resentful. And yet you were astute enough to recognize, wait, hold on. While that may be accurate, and in fact is, I'm the one who's getting robbed. I'm the one who's not having the intimacy with my husband. Yes. I am allowing myself to continue to seal myself in that box of victimhood, if you will, mm -hmm. by holding on to that. And it's like, once I release that, and I know it's, it's, a statement, right? But the subconscious mind, this is the beauty of this work. The subconscious mind hears it and it allows us to release that. Now, anytime you release something subconsciously, I am told by my healers that you have to replace it with something. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because the mind needs to continue to create that conversation. So for example, one of the replacement statements that I created is, I choose to accept others and love them for the light they are. And so by choosing to accept others and what they have done or not done for me and to me and love them for the light they are, it releases me of holding on to that pain that I've carried that 
kept me in that victim box. And I'm saying, you know what? Let's wake up, people. We are not the victims. We are the victors. Amen to that. Now, this may sound like a step backward, but I still do want to tie it up because I want to understand. And I know that people out there will want the same. What happened to your stepfather? So my stepfather, he he had a lot of health issues and it happened probably a decade after I left. He died a very slow death. I didn't talk to my stepfather up until, well, it was 2012. I spoke to him. We had a very heated conversation with my mother, him and I on the phone. This was at the time of my wedding. I invited my mom to the wedding and this was the the turning point where I realized that things would not turn for her and I, when she asked me to forgive my step, I asked for forgiveness of my stepfather um, on the phone call because, you know, I needed to be forgiven. And that was a painful recognition that they were in this reality. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, I think I misunderstood. She wanted, wait, she wanted to forgive you? She wanted me to ask forgiveness. Oh my God. I thought that's what you said. I'm like, hold on. (laughs) So hold on. You are not only the, I'm not going to call you the victim, but the survivor of this story, but you're now to blame for it occurring in the first place. Well, you're, you're I like was, having to really go, dig up this all this <laughs> releasing resentment here. Hey, I got my crystals. I'm okay. good. <laughs> I'll go back to the releasing resentment in a moment. I should have done this in chronological order. It's Forgive okay. Me. But it's okay. The holy hell. So she says, "Ask for forgiveness for what?" Well, in their world. I was the instigator. I was the seductress, as I mentioned, because I brought this on myself, being a child, being playful, being a, a child who danced. expressed little child and spinning around. Oh, my goodness. I liked to dance when I was a child. I loved Every music. Every child wants to dance. I'm just, uh. So okay. that, that was like the nail in the coffin when I realized things would not change because there was no way for my healing and just for my sanity that I could ever utter those words and ask my perpetrator who victimized me for forgiveness. No, that's not going to happen. So yeah, that was the end of that relationship. And I've since been moving on from that. And I always say as much as I wanted a mother figure in my life, I believe God puts people in our path to fill those gaps. I've had so many amazing women who have stepped up and mothered me and, and sisterhood that has helped nurture me through that. So that's part of my recovery as well. That is glorious. There's a woman who I I used to help people overcome trauma professionally. That's what I did. You know, previous trauma, mostly sexual, but for years, that's what I did. And there's a woman who had wanted forever, had felt that after what she had gone through, that she was unlovable. And it was her cross to bear in life. She would never be loved. And what she said in her own transformational journey, she came back and said, I've recognized that I, that I, that I am the love of my life. Mm-hmm. And it just is the most heartwarming thing in the world to hear. Mm. Have you developed a whole nev- a new level of love for yourself? Oh, completely. We talk about, my friends and I, about our inner child and how I will spend the rest of my life nurturing, celebrating my inner child. And I visually see this child and I celebrate her. And you know what, Cheryl? I give her everything she wants. I speak to her with happiness and affirmation and you know, some of this is woo-woo um, and some of this is like real, like subconscious work that you, we have to retrain, remother ourselves in some respects. That's yes. Cool. I was going to say you've become that glorious mother you always hoped for. I, I have. It's really a blessing. And 
I've never experienced maternal motherhood in this life, but, you know, I feel like I have a chance to help others. And one of the uh, motivating or inspiring opportunities I saw in your interview that you're doing with other women is that, you know, we can realize we're not alone. We can connect, we can celebrate each other. We can continue this conversation and heal each other in the world one step at a time. And it begins with us, right? I mean, it has to, you know, as the old saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. But then if you're talking about this, that this, this road of healing begins with us. If we say that's it, this is not going to continue. The people that hurt me were hurt in whatever way. It doesn't excuse what they did. It doesn't condone what they did, mm -hmm. but they were hurt. Yes. Somebody has to have endured something to do something so reprehensible. But I'm stopping that cycle here. So then healed people become healed people. And here you are healed and passing on this message of hope. So, okay, there's, there's releasing resentment. What, what else would you give us that we can do? Mm. Well, I do have, let me just uh, revisit some key notes here. Um, so yeah, it's re and I would say just recreating belief systems that has been so powerful to me. And I've done everything from EMDR, all kinds of trauma healing. I've done shamanic work, you know, pretty much everything from woo woo to, you know, the most intense psychological um, dismantling of psychiatry, right? And it comes down to really giving ourselves belief systems that will foster us into new chapters because trust me, these, these conversations that we have when you're in a victim place, they repeat themselves on loop in our mind. And until we find a way to deconstruct those and create new ones, you will find many women repeating patterns that are not healthy and not forward forwarding their, their future and their, their life, their happiness. Their, you know, it's so defeating to see that happen. And, you know, I don't know if I can really shift gears here, but, you know, what, what I'm stepping into is a foundation, Free Her Forever, that is being led by a woman who has helped me turn that corner. And this is, you know, I feel like tools work differently for everybody. But trust me when I say three decades and belief systems, how powerful they are, that's when I really started to feel these major earthquaking shifts. It, it's, you point to something that's, that's so accurate, and I see and hear time and again speaking to these survivors, which is until we step in and do something dramatically different, these self-defeating patterns will continue to replicate. And it's through no fault of our own. I mean, it's not just, this is not just sex trafficking survivors. Mm. This is the human condition. Those wounds upon our psyche from when we're very young have a way of repeating and they, they replicate and we're left going, wait, again? But yes. I was trying to do differently. I, I chose a different profession. I chose a different guy. I chose a different place to live. But no matter where you go, there you are, right? That's so it. You bring up such good points that we've got to, at some point, reboot the whole system. I love how you said that. It is a reboot. Um, you know, there is, I feel, emotional and social development norms that need to be relearned or just, you know, re rebooted to be able to step into a new pathway. And I feel like any survivor who is listening to this is probably wanting a new pathway. It's, you bring such a good point. There's, when you talk about, well, in, in your case, you know, from, from five years old, your development took a different path. Like it, the, that normal quote unquote, what, for whatever normal means, but that, that the, the normal stages of development, it got truncated and you split off and there was a schism. You split off into this other, this other road. And I, man, 
Vita, I acknowledge you for doing what's necessary to, in fact, reparent yourself mm. and develop yourself, your brain, your self-esteem, your psyche to encompass all the things that got left out in those fundamental years. I can, you can hear the freedom that you have now. And the sad truth is that many, if not most, of the people who suffer from sex trafficking in any context are left captive to that which is between their ears. Once this, the sexual abuse stops and you've really demonstrated how to overcome in a beautiful way. It's, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication. And sometimes you want to quit. But for me, Cheryl, what kept me going is I felt if I quit, then I've let my abuser in some ways win. Here, here. Yes. It's, there's this phenomenon that I keep hearing uh, from people over the years where something happens. Like you'd said, you just that out of body moment when you said, I can't take this anymore. When your mother looked in and saw you and then looked away where this phenomenon occurs where we go dead behind the eyes. The dissociative response is very helpful when we're in the midst of abject horror but the problem is then it becomes this hair trigger and, and it kicks in all the time when there's not actual horror happening. And we end up missing life. We're, we're MIA. Yes. What it's, would you say is the most powerful thing that had you come back into your body? That is hard to really answer because I have been doing everything. I've worked with shamans. I've worked with healers. I've worked with psychoanalysts. I, I feel it's been a compilation of, um, of healing for me using many tools. I feel like we extract what we need at the right time. And there's not one tool I feel like is a you know wand over removing all of that that trauma, I feel like it's a true journey and really celebrating that journey. Like, oh my goodness, I have a second chance to find the tools that speak to me, that feel right, that intuitively excite me to want to make a difference and heal and, and explore that. I feel like we need to give ourselves permission that it's okay to keep learning and live this, this unknown. Because in the unknown, again, paradoxically, we get so much blessing and gifts and treasures and synchronicities and opportunities that come to us. I am fortunate that I've been able to have a relationship with a very supportive, loving, wonderful man. I believe I manifested that only because I believed that I didn't know how the journey was going to be. It was a little scary, but I was open to allowing a new conversation to happen in my life. As scary as that was, I knew I had to do something different to get something different. Right. You know, as you were talking about the different things you've done to heal and to, to go on this journey of, of, of healing and wholeness, one of the things that I found, and tell me if you found this for yourself, Vita, I've, I've found and, and have continually heard this from people that, so back to that dissociative response, we leave the body and then kind of stay there as a hollow shell for years to come and some people for the rest of their life. What I've, what I've heard from people and, and, and found personally is to come back into the body requires coming back in and feeling all those horrible feelings that you hadn't wanted to feel the first time around. I see you nodding. Is that something you've had to do? Come in and feel all the yuckiness? You hit the nail on the head and that is, that is right on the truth. And I feel like that is how people decide to, they choose. If they're going to take that, that unknown path of feeling and you're so wise in your wisdom that until we allow our body to feel it, I almost create this analogy like 
a child having a temper tantrum, it's this child within us having a temper tantrum that cannot break through unless we hear that child, we, we acknowledge that child. We acknowledge that child through allowing our body to feel all that. And we Yes, have our own tantrums. Yes. Like that? Is that what you mean? Holy yes. holy. You have to feel the grit. You've got to get into the dirt. Mm. And it might be there for hours. It could be there for a minute. It could be a days. It could I don't know what that answer is for you, for for your listeners, but I know like I had to be able to step into that. But on the other side of that, there is like the freaking gold pot rainbow. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so I encourage anyone who's on that fence of like, do I really want to feel this? I mean, we can feel, we can numb the pain. We know how to do that, right? But if you just allow yourself to let that child be acknowledged, you stop the tantrum in your mind, you stop the tantrum in your heart, and you create that next beat. And yeah. it's yours. It's yours, sister. Oh, talking about that space of being in the, you know, allowing yourself to feel and, and just really experience that, that the, the horror the yuckiness. There's a, there's a book called Letting Go by Dr. David Hawkins that I read and went during a really dark period. And I had just lost my, my grandmother passed and then my mom passed unexpectedly. I had broken my leg and lost I'm four so friends sorry. that had passed. It just, it was just, it was such a hard time. And he was saying this, Dr. Hawkins, about allowing yourself to feel the feelings that the only way you're actually going to be able to let these emotions go is to feel them fully. And I was thinking, but if I do, I will die, like literally die. The feelings were so bad in the midst of all this. My, my husband left for work one day and literally never came home again. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the, so I was thinking I cannot feel these feelings. The best I can do is, is do what I had done as a child after being kidnapped and pretend it didn't happen. I was like, yeah, not working this time. And so his, he, he said in his book, if we allow ourselves to feel <clears throat> the feelings, pardon, and I'm paraphrasing, they won't go on forever. They are finite. But I think why we don't want to dive in is because we think it's a, it's a bottomless pit and we'll be there forever and be swallowed whole by the feelings. But Vita, you make such a good point that if we can feel these things and allow ourselves to feel it and still embrace that, that little one on the inside, that temper tantrum analogy is just priceless. Mm. Because the, think of a little kid who's not allowed to feel their feelings. They go ballistic. It's like, no, be quiet. No, it's <laughs> take it. Don't listen to, the, you know, you're not going to get what you want. You're going to have to do it this way. <laughs> they go nuts. It's yeah. just, <laughs> such a good analogy. And that's, you know, it's energetic, Cheryl. And I know you know this because you help trauma survivors. And this is your world. But we have to release that energy. Otherwise, we keep it in our cellular levels of, 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 our, of our body, right? It doesn't, yes. it doesn't escape us unless we actively, consciously let that go. And I feel like what you said is so key to women or men taking that journey is that it doesn't last forever. Nothing lasts forever, right? Hallelujah. Yes. Speaking of hallelujah, it is the funniest thing I have to tell you, Vita. <laughs> tell me. I keep muting my microphone thinking, I got to be professional here. I got all this background noise. There is a van driving up and down my street going, repent, repent on the loudspeaker. Turn with you. Let go of your wicked ways. Repent, repent. And I'm like, oh, holy mackerel of all times. And I thought for a second, the last time we were talking about just allowing those feelings to be. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm going to unmute if he drives by saying the only way to, you know, salvation is to repent one more time. I thought, 
there's got to be a sign here of some kind for us. <laughs> there are so many signs. And I feel like, you know, at this time and place of where we're at in 2020, it's, it's divine that we are open to the signs and we're all connecting, we're collaborating. We are shaking the shit up out of everything, trafficking the awareness. And I know that you're such a beacon of light for the survivors because you give them permission to explore that. And you really, and there's this recognition that it's scary, but you're going to be okay. And there is light and there's gold and there's rainbows and there's magic on the other side of it. So let's not waste our life just holding on to shame because that defeats, that takes away our power, the shame. Right. And like you said, leaving it with your beautiful words about if you continued to be in that shame, if you didn't heal your, it would be allowing your stepfather in, in your traffickers to win. Vita Galore, what a delight to be with you today. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing your story and so bravely raising your voice. Thank you for allowing me to open the door, the window, or glean some light that there is a new chapter for anyone who's willing to take that next step, that familial trafficking is another part of trafficking that we can be aware of. It can happen in our own homes with our own family members, and that we, we can change the trajectory. We can. Amen. We certainly can. And it starts by being aware of all of the faces of sex trafficking. So thank you for sharing this one with us. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. You're most welcome. If you or someone you know has been taken for sex trafficking or you suspect that's happening, call 888-373-7888 or text the word HELP to 233-733. With your help, we can stop human trafficking now. To keep up with all of our latest work, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Trafficked Series. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to our podcast and listen to our next episode with Amber Rose, a survivor from Florida who went on to study psychology in order to understand her abductor, who she unknowingly worked for. Until then, I am your host, Cheryl Hunter, and we are here to end human trafficking. So remember, if you see something, say something. This is a Conveyor Media production. Host and creator, Cheryl Hunter. Executive producers, Colin Whelan and Rebecca Sermons. Head producer, writer, editor, Celine Beth Calderon. And music by Mickey O'Brien. <laughs>